Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It is one minute past nine. You're tuned to 102.7 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Kate Bell. Yes, Kate. <laughs> we've uh, we've we done it again. We shouldn't sing surprise anymore, Bron. This is just how it is. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Tim Thorpe, for uh, your wonderful three hours. In fact, six hours of Vital Bits throughout this weekend. Thank you so much to Andrew for uh, his wonderful Retro Soulful Bits episode 11 today, w- way back to the early days and um, featuring some great uh, Errol, er, Ella Fitzgerald and some um, other amazing tunes. So, yeah, really loved it. Thank you so much. Um, this program today, we have a, an eclectic mix of all kinds of things. Um, Cade, uh, you've got a very special guest lining, lined up to kick us off. I do. I've got Ben Francicelli from the Museums Victoria. Now, he's a vertebrate paleontologist, which I didn't even know that job existed. So, one, I'm curious to find out what his job's all about and how he got into it. But he's been doing a lot of work just around Melbourne. So, Bayside, Melbourne, and some of the fossils of some of the amazing sea life that used to roam the waters. Oh, probably not here. We were somewhere different five million years ago. And he's just going to fill us in and just some of the stuff that he's finding basically just either washed up on the beach or in shallow water it's incredible so um i'd be really interested and excited to talk to him because i know nothing about this topic so that's why we get these people in yeah i don't know that much about it either um other than what i've sort of learned through this program but um yeah the, the fossil record in that particular part of the bay in particular is uh extraordinary so really looking forward to finding out more from ben um, we're going to catch up on a few bits and pieces of news. Um, some things to plug. Winter by the Sea is just in full steam, so that will be really great. Um, then we're going to catch up with Dave Donnelly, who we've had on the, sh- the program a bit. In fact, he is now our Dave Donnelly. Uh, talking about whales, but there's been a whole lot of stuff going on this week, and you might have seen some um, very exciting footage of migrating whales during the week, and in particular a southern right whale, um, but also some uh, very clearly documented examples of um, whale watchers behaving badly. So we're going to talk about that. We touched on that last week as well. Um, But also some really interesting stuff around the feeding ecology of humpbacks. There's been some – the Dolphin Research Institute put out some – um, some information on this and just really observing different types of feeding behaviour. So we'll talk to Dave about that. And uh, just an update in general on the whale migration season. Where are we at at the moment and what can we expect in the months ahead? Then we're going to cross to South Australia. We're going to be speaking with Andrew Hunter. He is the president of the Scuba Divers Federation of South Australia, but he's also the spokesperson for a new group, which is, I think they're new, formed recently called the Cuttlefish Alliance. Uh, and they, they have banded together really to, I guess, a little bit like Spider Crab Alliance here in Melbourne, to um, to stand up for cuttlefish. And in South Australia, um, we're going to talk to Andrew about the magnificent giant cuttlefish 
around Wyala in particular, um, which is where they come to congregate, aggregate, um, spawn, breed, and uh, they do that once a year. So I'm sure you're spotting some parallels already with what we've just been witnessing with our spider crabs. And some new threats resulting from recent removal of temporary fishing ban by the South Australian government. And just, as I mentioned, some really interesting parallels with the annual migration of giant spider crabs here in Victoria and um, just some threats faced by those animals. So yeah, really looking forward to talking to Andrew about that. And some killer tracks too. So yeah, great show lined up for you. So hopefully you can just sit back with a cup of tea or coffee and uh, and have a good listen. Um, Kate, I believe you have a bit of a weather forecast. I do. Look, when it comes to weather, we're in that time of the year that I'd actually, if you're a surfer, you'd be confused in thinking that summer was here because the winds over the next few days are all going to be east-south-easterly, which is a bit unusual for this time of year. We tend to have mainly west-northwesterly winds, those bitterly cold winds that come sort of from the um, inland. And we've got oh, some reasonably good weather, 16s, 15s. 13s coming up over the next few days and as I said we've got those sort of east southeasterly winds so and the conditions are going to be a couple of foot of swell so if you you're going to have to get into your summer frame of mind and head to your summer surf breaks if you're able to travel to surf breaks which I actually saw an interesting conundrum people asking whether they can launch a boat at Queenscliff and go and surf at quarantine station which is over the other side of their heads which is Mornington Peninsula so as far as I know, with the COVID lines, they're around the suburbs. But what happens when people are in the water? Anyway, that's not one that we're going to be able to answer at the moment. Well, I, I didn't think that kind of activity was permitted anyway. It was pretty clear that it was just down to the sort of activity where you could just really be on your own. So um, surfing, obviously, if you're just a sole surfer out there surfing, and I think golf's allowed as well, and just running in your local area. But people are being really discouraged from driving you know, I think it's been made pretty clear, don't drive three hours just because it's within the boundary so that you can go and, and do that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Oh, the, the conundrum is more that Queenscliff and Geelong side aren't actually in lockdown. And so that someone living in Queenscliff can launch a boat and head over to Quarantine Station, oh, which see. is a surf break in Mornington Peninsula. Quite within the rules. Yeah, right. Um, okay. Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? So yes, yes. It's It's... And like what happens with a lot of this, people try to find grey area and I think that's where all the fun things begin um, and a lot of questions, um, interesting questions that can't necessarily be answered straight away come out of it. But anyway, I'll move on. Um, so the tides for today, we've got a low uh, quarter past 10 and a high at 5 o'clock. So plan your dives and your surfing around that. Apparently the visibility is quite nice at the moment, about 10 metres most places around the bay. So if you are able to travel for a dive, and again, as Bron said, keep it local, um, get out there and enjoy it i guess it's considered a form of exercise this time so like golf diving is actually allowed during this lockdown yeah as I've long saw, as you're not traveling too far yeah, exactly i saw some footage uh yesterday just in social media um of the viz under portsea pier yesterday which was just outstanding like you almost don't need to bother to get in the water it was that clear and uh and weedy sea dragons under there which apparently is quite an unusual thing as well uh, there's quite a few around at portsea um, I think it depends I'm working on, the... on a project that I'll fill you in on at another time. Yeah, Ron. okay, all right. You might even have to interview me. <laughs> it would be a pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. Now, we've got maybe a minute or so. Have you got some news for us? Uh, so just quick news is that the Australian Marine Science Association is having an annual general meeting on Wednesday, the 29th of July. But before the meeting, there's going to be a talk that's open to the public and the person speaking some of the listeners might know him you might even know him he's a guy called dr anthony bockshall <laughs> have you heard of him uh, yes. 
<laughs> some I know from Triple R, but he's also the chair of the Victorian Marine and Coastal Council, and he was also the um, Australian Marine Science Association national president for a few years, going back a while. Um, he's someone that I enjoy seeing talk, and I actually enjoy hearing him on air every time he does. And he's actually going to be presenting a talk about making impact with marine science in a COVID world. So it's something that all marine scientists are having to deal with and we're all sort of dealing with it in different ways. So he's going to basically come in and sort of bring out some highlights and good points some bad points and then sort of open it up to a bit of discussion. So it's going to be a fascinating discussion. So if people want to join in, which anyone can, shoot a quick email to AMSA, which is A-M-S-A, Victoria, all one word, at gmail.com or jump onto the Australian Marine Science Association Victoria Facebook page and there's an ad for it pinned to the front. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Kate. Uh, Kate, I'm hoping you're still there. I most certainly am. I'm hoping our guest is there too, so I'll get stuck straight into the introduction. Excellent. Um, until the movie The Meg was released, um, a movie about a megalodon that I have not seen, and after reading the plot, I have to say it sounds terrible, most of us probably haven't given much thought to what was swimming around in the sea millions of years ago years ago. I know I hadn't until I stumbled across the Lost World of Bayside Fossils Facebook page. There's stories on the page that bring life, the incredible sea life from about five million years ago. They tell us more about to tell us more about the amazing discoveries being made Bayside. We've got Brent Fanticelli, a vertebrate paleontologist at Museums Victoria, and the knowledgeable and friendly voice behind the Lost World of Bayside Fossils Facebook page. Welcome to Marinara, Ben. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? Look like we don't. Oh, okay. We might have a bit of a Skype issue here. Well, that was such a beautiful introduction. <laughs> and I didn't even get him there to respond. <laughs> do you know what I might? I think I might do. Um, I'm looking at Kent, who's in a different studio to me. What I might do is uh, I am going to. I've got some news which uh, I was planning on saving until about 9:25. I'm going to launch into this while uh, Kent tries to get. Ben on the line and I would suggest that if we don't manage to get Ben on the line then we might give him a quick phone call because we do have a mobile number for him as well. All right, I'm going to launch into this because I've got a couple of things to mention here. One is a plug. We don't normally do this for um, for commercial uh, organisations, um, businesses, but Patagonia are a great business and they're extremely eco-friendly and I wanted to mention this one because it came through my news channels. They've got um, a new uh, a line which they call Net to Hats and what they're doing is using discarded fishing nets um, as part of a, a range of hats that they're developing. They're actually um, using the um, fishing nets um, that have been collected to form um, brim, like the brim of the hat, if that makes sense. If you can picture a, a cap and you've got that really kind of um, the peak in front of you, um, it's all being made from discarded uh, fishing nets that are collected um in communities washed up on the beach in Chile and Argentina. So they're hoping to repurpose 35 tonnes of fishing net related waste every single year in the form of these hats. So it's pretty extraordinary stuff that they're doing there. I reckon it's fabulous. So good on you, Patagonia. I just wanted to give you guys a plug. And we can only really, we should be supporting um, these businesses and their sustainability work that they do as much as we possibly can. All right, I'm going to give one other plug here. We're still trying to get Ben on the line. Um, this came through from the Victorian National Parks Association. Just wanted to give them a big shout out and uh, mention something that they're asking you to do, all of us to do. Uh, it's the Victorian government are undertaking a parliamentary inquiry into the decline of Victoria's ecosystems, and this includes marine ecosystems as well, um, and existing and possible measures to restore habitats and populations of threatened and endangered species. 
So they are looking at uh, people putting in public submissions to the inquiry on ecosystem decline. It's an opportunity to highlight the importance of protecting places like the wildflower-filled woodlands of the west, tall forests of the east, the seagrass meadows in our bays and uh, more than 2,000 threatened species in Victoria um, are in desperate need of urgent protection. So the closing date for public submissions uh, uh, is Monday the 31st of August. You can go to the VNPA uh, website and we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. All right. Uh, Cade, I've just had a message from Kent that says Ben's mobile is going straight to voicemail and we can't seem to get him on Skype. So I think what we might do, I know that you had a piece of uh, news there. If anyone's out there and happens to know, Ben Franciacelli, can you give him a nudge and tell him we're waiting to speak to him? In the meantime, um, Cade, let's go with the news because I know you've got another piece of news which we didn't quite get to before. Bit of news, and I have a feeling maybe Ben set his alarm for 9:25 because we might have said we we're going to interview him at 9:30. But it's <laughs> hopefully he's enjoying his sleep. Now, one of the things, so there was a shark attack yesterday. I don't know if you saw on the north New South Wales coast. Um, no, I didn't. Which no, so that's I don't think it's like two in about six months they've had up that way, and so again that's going to put that on the radar, and it's something we've discussed a lot here, and so. I'm not sure if this is from a highly reputable source, but it's basically just putting um, the amount of fatalities from various animals into perspective. So shark, which we, I just mentioned then, so there's basically across the, the world, there's a death every three months with it. So the deadliest big one, what would you think that would be? Or deadliest animal? Um, so are you asking me for the deadliest? Yeah, look, I'm just question without notice. <laughs> what type of shark is the deadliest shark? Is that what you're asking? No, what type of animal? So if you're going to think other animals. Marine. Uh, anywhere, anywhere from born. <laughs> human <laughs> beings. Human beings. Let's go with that. Correct. Oh, yes. You're not surprised. So, but when it comes to, I guess, wildlife, the snakes are up there. So there's a death every 11 minutes from snakes. And to put in the sharks into perspective, uh, the more people are killed by moose or cows each huh. year. And... <laughs> Then the other one is that basically as a dog, I think it's one death every 21 seconds when it comes to dogs. Hey, I've just seen that Ben has joined us. So all I wanted to finish on, you're right with humans, but the one that follows on from that is mosquitoes. They're the ones we're really going to be worried about. So let's go from big things, from very little things to very big things. And Ben, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hello. I wasn't sure if I should talk yet or not. So. <laughs> I gave you a beautiful introduction earlier, but unfortunately you weren't there to receive it. But basically, look, I just wanted to get to your job title to begin with. That was something that struck me as like, how do you decide? And like, it's not something when you're going through school that a vertebrate paleontologist is sort of on those <laughs> list of jobs that you can do like a fireman. How, how did you come to be one? Uh, yeah, well, I think I guess I was four years old at the time, and uh, my uncle had given me a book, and it was entitled Life Before Man. And, you know, I couldn't read it at the time because I was four years old, uh, but I opened up the book, and there were these fantastic glossy pictures of dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals in it, and it really excited me. Um, you know, they were horrifically inaccurate as well, but it really got me thinking, what else is out there in terms of paleontology and uh, ever through all the way throughout uh, 
high school, primary school, I was known as that dinosaur kid, the kid that was infatuated with dinosaurs. So it just always stuck with me. What I find fascinating is, yes, you're the dinosaur kid, but you haven't travelled around the world to go and chase T-Rexes and Brontosauruses and the Triceratops, some of my favourite I'm just listing off there. Yeah. You've actually, you're in Victoria, you're in Melbourne, and you're jumping in the frigid waters at the moment, and you're making these amazing discoveries basically at our doorstep. Was that something you're aware of? Like who, who pointed you in that direction? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because, you know, again, I was always brought up with Tyrannosaurus rex and you kind of get the hype of the animal whenever you think about it as well. Here's an animal that weighs the same as an African elephant that can leer into a two-story window and is just terrifying, you know, teeth for bananas. But then you think about what actually lived on our own doorstep as well. And if we travel back five million years, um, you get to a place called Bayside, just 30 minutes outside of Melbourne, down the coastline. And it was really me just forcing myself to go out and explore the world. And uh, there was one online article um, at the time when I was first studying my, um, my Bachelor of Environmental Science that said that you could find fossils in Bayside. And I was like, oh, that's incredible. I'm so excited for this. So I went down there. And then I just started to pick up all these fossils on the ground. And I was like, wow, they weren't joking about this. And it is one of the richest paleontological sites in all of Australia by far. So what was going on five million years ago at Bayside? And where was Bayside? Yeah, so for all of your viewers who aren't too sure where Bayside is, uh, southeast suburbs of Melbourne, so basically like a 30-minute drive from the city of Melbourne if you get a good drive along Beach Road right down there. And there are two sites. So you've got Beaumaris, which has been known of for a very, very long time, over 100 years or more. Uh, and then you've got a second site called Site B that we discovered with the help of citizen scientists in 2018. And it's there that we're making some absolutely incredible discoveries as well. So the entire site dates back to roughly five to six million years of age, and it's one of the deadliest oceans that has ever existed. Like, I'm not even kidding with this one. I mean, you can find the Megalodon, you know, the one with Jason Statham when he was in the Meg in 2018. Um, the Megalodon, of course, actually did exist. It was a huge macro-predatory shark that was 15 metres in length uh, with a mouth so large it could swallow you whole. It really was a terrifying predator. Uh, but also joining the ranks of the megalodon was this gigantic macroraptorial sperm whale. And in order to understand the anatomy of that creature, you kind of have to go and understand more about modern sperm whales as well to, to see just how incredible and how different it is from its ancestors. So the modern sperm whale, Physeta, gets to about 20 meters in length, weighs 50 metric tons. It is a giant in its own realm, uh, but it eats giant squid. And it has these giant uh, peg-like teeth located on the lower jaw that it uses to eat the giant squid with. Why these macroraptorial sperm whales are so different is because they have teeth on the upper jaws as well that interlock with one another. There was one specimen that was discovered in Peru back in 2008. It had the largest functional teeth of any animal that ever existed. One of those teeth was 36.2 centimetres long. So it was an absolute monster. And we found its teeth in Bayside as well. They're the largest teeth ever found in Australasia. They're just over 30 centimetres in length, and it is an absolute giant. So an animal that has a skull the size of a small car, it would have terrorised oceans for millions of years. And the hypothesis that's running at the moment is that 
it probably fed, based on its dentition alone, on other baleen whales when it was alive. Wow. Now, what I love about particularly your ability to paint that picture is that this is coming from, when you see the, the Facebook page, this is coming from what most people would just say looks like a lump of rock. <laughs> and you're yeah, drawing yeah. this amazing story out of a, rump, a lump of rock. You said you, as a kid, you went and found fossils. How do you get your eye in? Because I looking to me, some of the objects you bring up, I look at it and go, yeah, I would probably pass that a million times every time I go for a dive. But you're bringing it up and you're telling these amazing stories. Yeah. Is it something you get your eye in for? Is it something that you've got better as you've gone on? And you said citizen science help you. So how do people get involved in it too? Yeah, so uh, it's definitely a learning curve, I can tell you now. You don't just go down there with this ability to be able to pick up absolutely everything. So you read. You read every single article that's possibly available to you, and you start to create this background network in the back of your mind of the different textures and, and, and the feel of different fossils as well. You know, what does an ear bone of a whale look like when it's broken in half because of the crushing action of the waves? You start to realize what that looks like because you find so many different broken pieces that you otherwise wouldn't be able to know if you just held an ear bone in your hands. Um, so, you know, there's some really fantastic stories. Like there's the only piece of evidence that we have for this, this group of animals in Southeast Australia called the Demon Ducks of Doom or the Dromonithidae. Uh, they stood at about three meters in height, but in, in Morris, in particular in Bayside, they're known from only one single bone. And when I first looked at that bone and I picked it up in the collections, it doesn't look like anything. It just looks like any other normal rock. But if you give it to the right expert, they'll tell you, well, actually, this is the metatarsus. This is part of the leg bone, the lower leg bone of one of these giant birds that used to live here five million years ago. So it's all about gaining that expertise. And I have been very, very lucky as well for the second part of that question with citizen scientists as well, to be able to collaborate with a number of people in the field and specifically members of the public that have even better knowledge than I do about this stuff. They've been going out there and going fossil hunting for decades before I have. So they've been able to pass on the knowledge to me. And I work very closely with them. And it was because of the way in which we worked, uh, we were able to discover a completely new site in 2018. And I noticed you called that site B, so I'm guessing that one's under wraps for a reason. It is, yeah. We, uh, we've continued to make some pretty astounding discoveries from that site. And uh, one of the main reasons we're hiding it from everyone is because of the abundance of megalodon teeth that we're finding there. Uh, and yeah. uh, everyone loves megalodon. You know, <laughs> I can't blame them. It's such an exciting animal that, you know, um, you get a whisper of megalodon teeth and everyone goes crazy for it. So what do... What can people do if they do find a uh, fossil? So yeah, if, do you ob obviously receive sightings from people? Do they send a photo? Yeah, so what you can do if you do find a fossil in Bayside, um, I've, I'm, I'm operating two social media accounts that you can contact and you'll get me directly for every single one of them. So you can send a picture to the lost world of Bayside on Instagram and you just send a picture through, you'll get me and I'll be able to say what it is, what it could be. It's hard to say through pictures alone, but always have a scale bar in the picture as well if you think you know exactly what it is. Pardon me. And uh, I also operate another Facebook group called The Lost World of Bayside, amazingly enough. Um, and you can also send pictures through to that. And again, you'll be getting me and I'll be able to tell you exactly what it is. And if you can't contact me, um, basically contact Melbourne Museum and uh, we'll be able to escort you to me or other experts who can identify the structures that you've got.
Yeah, but the accessibility of the museum and the museum staff is something that we're really fortunate here in Victoria, particularly in the marine um, sector. They've always made themselves available and always ready and willing to help out. Now, one of the things I did see is that, like all programs, you, know, you need a bit of cash to keep you going. And is there any way, as we wrap up, is there any way people can support? And I have to say, $50 for a day in the field is quite cheap. Can I hire you for 50 bucks a day to help me? <laughs> yeah, basically you can. So I'm very lucky because my field work is just down the road from me, and that's it. I, all I have to do is get in the car, and I'm 10 kilometres away from the sites that I need to go and access. So I've got everything I need with me. I've got my diving gear. And the most important thing is having that memory in the back of my mind for exactly what it is that I need to see around me. So $50 a day. I've been all across Victoria doing field work. It is by far the absolute cheapest way of doing that. If you do want to donate to the Lost World of Bayside, what you can do is you can head to our bio, in, uh, on the Instagram page and the Lost World of Bayside, or you can head to the announcement on the Facebook group as well. It's there uh, that you can help us because all of this happens with the help of philanthropy and the help of every single one of you that are listening right now. That is awesome, Ben. Thank you very much. I have so many more questions as um, we've just scratched the surface of your knowledge and of yeah. your stories. Thank you for your time this morning and look, I'd love to catch up with you and get you back on the show later. Absolutely. I'm more than excited to do that. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, Ben. Bye. All right, Ron. Oh, you. Excellent. I have some questions as well, but we're going to hold those off till next time and we'll definitely organise a time for that. Um, ben, have we still got you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Excellent. I was just wondering, would you like to give a plug? I noticed that you're going to be doing um, uh, snorkelling from your lounge session. This is part of the Port Phillip Eco Centre online seminar and session. So this is with um, Eco Centre marine ecologist Matt MacArthur. Uh, Thursday, 30th of July, is that right? That is correct. Yes, I'll also be there as well. And if you have any pressing questions about paleontology or about the fauna of Port Phillip Bay, shoot me up. Um, you know, give me as many questions as you want, because the harder the question, the better it is. <laughs> Excellent. So that's um, Thursday, 30th of July from 6 till 7.30 p.m. It's part of this uh, amazing series that we are seeing, uh, not just at the Port Phillip Eco Centre, obviously Winter by the Sea. And I'm going to talk about that one briefly in a minute as well. So um, something to uh, note in your diaries. And it's a really good time as well. Um, probably not if you've got kids, but if you don't have kids or if you're happy to just, you know, stick them in front of Uncle Telly for a while, <laughs> you can take part in that. So it'd be awesome. And thanks, Ben. And we'll definitely catch up with you down the track. No problems again. Thank you for having me on. I'll see you soon. On 3 R. without further ado, we're now going to cross to Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia, Dolphin Research Institute and Radio Marinara about some um, amazing news this week with uh, whale migration, particularly into Port Phillip Bay. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bron and Kate, and I just feel so special being called from Mar Radio Marinara. <laughs> Rapidly. <laughs> More we've we've just focus. nabbed you. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Definitely. So there's been some big news this week and um, we just had a request from um, Fiona via Tim Thorpe uh, about the southern right whale. Let's kick off with that one. Off by Morris. Um, Fiona asks, is this a normal situation, particularly for a southern right? Uh, yeah, look, southern right whales are um, interesting animals. They come to our coastline mostly for calving and mating, but uh, occasionally you get these sub-adults also which cruise around the coastline, uh, fairly curious about their world, including boats and other things. And, um, yes, we get one or two of these uh, occurrences of the year in Port Phillip. Um, and stretching all the way up to Edith Vale, it's kind of getting to that 
uh, northern end of the range, but uh, it actually made its way right up through to uh, to Bow Morris and and and, uh, and then back down the coast along Mornington as well. So yes, it is, you know, it is an annual event, I guess you could say that, but you wouldn't say it's super regular either. No, in particular coming that far up into the bay and being that close to the shoreline and, and being so accessible for people to see. Yeah, and that's a that's a fantastic thing for for us to enjoy those uh, critically endangered species um, to be able to see them so close. That is natural behaviour for them. They're, they're quite often in very very shallow water, um, sometimes less than sort of five metres of depth. Um, but of course, there's a, there's a secondary aspect to that, which which is what we saw last week, which is people doing the wrong thing around the whale. So um, I was sent one photo of eight stand up paddle boarders. Um, around the whale. Um, we also had some uh, fishing vessels crowding the whale um, off the uh, off the coast of Mornington in about five metres of water and manoeuvring their boats and actually live streaming that event and telling people how to drive boats around whales. And of course, these are not good things. These, these things lead to collisions with vessels. It leads to injury to people, which we saw in Sydney a few years ago. Um, and, and it can also, of course, um, lead to these animals no longer coming into these closer uh, nearby waters. So please, by all means, enjoy the animals from the from the beach and from the land. But you know, of course, social distancing caused a few issues in Mornington while the whale was so close to the uh, the pier there. But just be, be in mind, bear in mind, we're in a strange place in, in our world at the moment. We've got to keep a little bit of distance between ourselves, but um, also the whales and dolphins. What should people do, Dave, if they, and we've asked you this question before, but it doesn't hurt to repeat it. What should people do if they happen to observe behaviour like that? And clearly, I can't believe it, eight people on paddle boards and multiple vessels with this whale that is just sort of coming into the bait. Just it's extraordinary. Um, just saying so much, you know, bad behaviour at the moment. I feel like, you know, I feel like a mum wagging her finger. But seriously, this is just ridiculous. What should people do if they observe stuff like this? Yeah, look, the, the, the best thing you can do is to not be a judge and jury on the beach. Um, the best thing to do is to call um, the uh, DELP hotline, which is 136186 for reporting wildlife offences, and try and take photos of the vessels in that activity and also get their registrations. Um, that's the only way we can pass that information on to the right authorities. Um, a lot of people call uh, or hit our Facebook page up. There's really not much we can do but give you that same advice I just gave you. Um, and I guess... We can document it and present a case at some point, but these are critically endangered animals and they're prone to vessel strikes. The northern right whales are almost extinct, uh, North Atlantic right whales almost extinct, and one died just this last week, a calf from ship strike and vessel strikes. It's just not good enough, um, and people need to be very aware of that. And, uh, and I must also point out that SUPs, or stand-up paddleboards and kayaks, etc., are classified as vessels. So therefore, they're supposed to be 200 metres away from the whales. Now, that may have changed in the recent DELP changes to regulations, but I don't believe so. They are defined as vessels. Really important stuff to remember there. And yes, not much point calling you guys. Call the authorities because they can do something about it. And as you mentioned, it is, it is an offence. It is against the law to do what these people are doing. Um, all right, let's move on to something positive. And uh, I know we were talking about the uh, feeding behaviour and feeding ecology of humpback whales. And I noticed the Dolphin Research Institute's put out some stuff on snacking behaviour. Can you talk us through that? Yes. How amazing has this been? Um, this is fantastic stuff. Look, um, 
Humpback whales do feed on migration, and people think they fast all the way up the coast, and that's not the case at all. They, they may well fast in, in the warmer waters when they're doing other things like mating and giving birth, but certainly um, feeding on migration is something we've observed in Port Phillip since the uh, mid-2000s and, and southern New South Wales since the mid-90s. Um, so they do snack, if you like, or feed on migration. In fact, we did a study on this uh, a few years back off the coast of Eden in New South Wales and published some papers on the topic. It's, but what's really interesting about what happened last week is we've never observed this amazing lunge feeding behaviour at the surface um, around the, uh, the two bays region and, and certainly not off uh, Phillip Island. And this one animal, we were on the water the other day with the Dolphin Research Institute vessel, we encountered one animal feeding for intensively for over an hour, um, demonstrating three different types of strategies. There was a skimming behaviour, which is a slow movement across the surface, taking in water and prey. Uh, another more aggressive behaviour, such as the lateral lunge feed, where the animal's on its side and throwing open that big jaw that uh, Ben was talking about early, earlier. Uh, and extending those big ventral pleats and taking in huge volumes of water. And then, of course, there's a, the more spectacular vertical lunge, which uh, animal comes straight up through the water, which is a photo you use to promote today. Um, and you see the, the beautiful pleats extended and bellowing out like uh, the bellows that you would use to, uh, in the old days, to fan a fire. So it's spectacular to see. It's amazing to have on our coastline. And to be honest, when we were out there, the respect that was shown in terms of the space around the animals by the vessels that were present, which was only three, ourselves uh, and two whale watch operators, we were never on the same animals at the same time and everybody got to observe this amazing thing and it's, it's just been fantastic, really, really great. Um, notice that the Dolphin Research Institute also has a winter snapshot magazine. Um, can you? I'm putting you on the spot here. Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> I actually can't tell you much about that Excellent. because I haven't seen it. <laughs> That's all right. I can read about it. So this is, um, I think this is something you can actually, oh, no, I think you can just download it. It's not something that is being, look, I might do some more research into that. Sorry, Dave, I'm putting you on the spot there. That, that's all right. Yeah, we put out e-bulletins quite regularly um, and there is um, snapshot uh, e-books as well which talk about the last few months of the activities of the Institute and it's not just field activities, it's the education and outreach programs, the community engagement, um, the whale research, the dolphins in Port Phillip, um, a whole range of different things that, that the Institute's been up to. So uh, keeping, keeping us busy all the time and summarising that for our great supporters. Um, can and I, can I'll, yep. I just go back to the feeding if that's okay? Sure can. What what are the unfortunate things that they're feeding on? Do you have any idea? That's what I'm curious about. What's what's their snack? I was waiting for that question, Kate. It's almost like I wrote it down for you. Uh, look, the simple answer... <laughs> Happy for you to walk me into it. <laughs> the simple answer is we don't know the species of what they were feeding on. But what we do know is that they were not the typical species that we would expect to humpback whales to be feeding on in this region, which is usually things like red bait, um, uh, also sprat, sandy sprat, those sorts of things with really uh, dense schooling fishes. Um, what we could see from the surface and uh, what the, see, they were accompanied by dolphins and seals as well was quite small juvenile fish of some description and we couldn't really get a handle of the species and we don't have a permit to sample the, the prey items. So 
Um, I'm going to be scrutinising some images, but you know what it's like with juvenile fish. Unless you're a die bray, yeah, you're not really in the game <laughs> to identify a, a species just by a quick snapshot um, of a juvenile. But um, whatever it was, it was on the sounder of the vessel, very dense. Um, and what the animals had done, probably the dolphins and the whales and the seals working together, had pushed the bait up from about 40 metres and pushed it up to the the surface. And um, that's when we saw that sur spectacular surface feeding behaviour by this particular sub-adult whale. So uh, they were working really, really well, but I, I'm sorry I can't answer that question unequivocally, Kate. <laughs> awesome. Uh, it's always worth asking, though. And yes, indeed. All right, um, Dave, we're going to have to move on just because I've got Andrew Hunter waiting for us in South Australia. Um, and But we will keep in touch with you. Um, just, just to finish up, where are we at with the current whale migration season, sort of in, in broad terms? Uh, we're going on the downhill side of the peak. Um, the animals will start to taper off over the next few weeks, um, but we are still seeing quite good numbers of humpback whales and the odd southern right whale coming through. We just added number 127 a humpback whale fluke to our catalogue. Thank you to all our citizen scientists. Um, we're having a wonderful time this season um, despite the challenges of COVID-19. But thank you to all our wonderful citizen scientists. Without you, we could not do it. And, uh, and also to the Wildlife Coast Cruisers team for being such a great support to us. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dave. Just that number again, 136186. If you happen to observe people behaving badly around whales and indeed dolphins uh, or any other animals really um, in, the, in the weeks ahead. Thanks heaps and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks. Yes. You too. Bye for now. Uh, now, every year from May till August, the Australian giant cuttlefish migrate en masse to gather and reproduce in waters near Whaler in South Australia. Just like the spawning of coral on our northern reefs and the molting aggregations of spider crabs here in Port Phillip Bay, the yearly aggregation of giant cuttlefish in South Australia tracks international film crews, divers, researchers and journalists is a must-do on Australian scuba divers' list of great dives to do. After years of campaigning, the giant cuttlefish of South Australia were given some protection during this important time of their breeding cycle. However, the ban uh, on taking them has been lifted and already there's growing concerns about knee-jerk reaction from people wanting to jump straight back into fishing and taking them. To tell us about the cuddles and what's going on, we're crossing now to Adelaide to speak with the president of the Scuba Divers Federation of South Australia and spokesperson for the Cuttlefish Alliance, Andrew Hunter. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Bron. Thank you very much for having me on Radio Marinara. Oh, it's wonderful to have you with us. I thought let's start with a bit of a description. Um, most of our listeners are probably, they might have picked up a cuddle bone on the beach, not actually a bone, of course, uh, at some stage, but not many would have actually had the great fortune of seeing them in their natural habitat. Can you talk, uh, talk us through what they're like? Absolutely. Well, they're a, a really unique creature to observe. Um, the colour change abilities that they have, um, like uh, some of the other cephalopods, is um, is absolutely stunning. They're um, uh, something which um, is is really uh, described as almost alien in their um, unique kind of. Uh, um, I guess characteristics in the water. So it's it's something which, uh, truly, if your listeners um, haven't seen any images of them, I'd really suggest jumping online having a look because they are just remarkable and unique. Um, very colourful in their pattern changes and displays, um, and also very intelligent creatures like a lot of um, cephalopods in terms of um, their interactions. People commonly mistake them for squid. I've noticed as well, but they're really quite different, aren't they? Yeah, they are, uh, and the giant Australian cuttlefish um, can be quite a large species as well. Um, they're really um, 
a much larger uh, creature than squid. Um, I mean, looking at the cuttles, you get a, a range of sort of sizes of those washing up on beaches, but um, you can get some very um, large individuals indeed from this species. Now, I mentioned there was some no-take legislation that was brought in for their protection. Um, can you talk us through that? Why was the no-take legislation brought in? Uh, well, there was a, uh, a population crash um, around about uh, 2013 for um, this species. It is... Um, like a lot of uh, cephalopods, it can be um, quite a boom and bust cycle. Um, their lifespan is short. Um, they've been described as the rock stars of the ocean. Uh, they kind of um, um, are short-lived, but um, but live quite a um, um, a remarkable existence. Uh, uh, they. Uh, we had this population crash that was of grave concern, um, particularly to the uh, locals in Wayala. Um, for this uh, for this event, and so um, a lot of uh, work was done to um, instigate a temporary fishing ban um, to allow the population to recover, um, which it has. And uh, this current season has been um, one of the best in many years in terms of the number of individuals in the water. So just to be clear, the ban was brought in, um, the, the population crashed because of overfishing, is that right? Well, look, the, pop, the science on uh, population is, um, is not enormously deep. Um, it can't, we can't sort of specifically say whether that related to fishing, whether it related to water temperature, whether it related to predation from different species. It's simply not um, something that we can categorically say um, and hence um, not knowing this um, it's it's a concern in terms of the um, vulnerability of that population. I guess you could then reasonably argue though if you've got a no-take ban in place for seven years and suddenly the numbers are booming then that has to be a fairly significant factor. Well look it, it's certainly um, it's certainly front of mind um, but we recognise that there are, you know, multiple stakeholders involved in consideration of this issue. Um, but, um, but in terms of the science, there's um, there's not an enormous amount of longitudinal data about population fluctuations for the species, and so it's it's something we're really concerned about. Yeah, I'm interested in the lifting of the ban as well and the timing of it. So you've got this seven-year ban in place. Uh, was it always intended to be seven years or was it? Is it kind of like a, you know, lick your finger and hold it up to the wind? Is it, oh, yeah, it's about now, we should maybe lift it. Like, why was the ban lifted? Look, it was always um, put in place as a temporary ban. Um, that's something that the state government here has been clear about in terms of the mechanism that was used. Uh, but... Uh, you know, temporary has uh, different, um, I guess, connotations for different people in terms of uh, how long that might be. Um, but I think that this uh, indicates that perhaps uh, we need to be looking at a more permanent, sustainable outcome here. Uh, Andrew, it's Kate here. I'm sitting at home as well, and as I can see you are. One of the things Morning, I... Look, I did a bit of reading and I saw that there's not actually that much cuttlefish fishing in South Australia. So it's not a popular target species. And it, basically it was in the late 90s is when that 
they discovered the aggregation, fishermen discovered the aggregation and they hit it really hard. And then the ban was brought in basically as a result of so many being taken. And at the time it was, they said it was mainly commercial fishermen taking them for bait, for snapper. So for probably long lining and fishing in the area. Now it's been a while since then. So the nineties, God, that was a while ago. It's over 20 years ago. Uh, people are obviously fishing for it. What are they fishing for them for now? So is bait still the main purpose of opening this back up for fishing or are there other reasons? Well, look, I think um, as, as you might know, Kate, there's there's been serious issues with the snapper fishery here in South Australia and uh, there's been restrictions put in place very recently in regards to that. Um, so it's, it's not really clear in terms of the um, uh, magnitude of uh, commercial fishing take, uh, recreational fishing take um, and usage in the market um, for this species um, from a fishing point of view. Um, so that's really, I guess, um, another area of um, research and information that's not um, especially clearly delineated uh, for us here. Andrew, I've just noticed the time. We're going to have to uh, pretty much wrap up. Just one last question to end on, and we will get you back on the program um, for sure. for uh, obvious parallel uh, situation going on with our spider crabs here in Port Phillip Bay as well. So really keen to continue to follow this through. Um, what are the plans of your group moving forward? And if people want more information, where can they go for it? Uh, look, we um, have uh, formulated an advisory committee um, that's met uh, has uh, met... Uh, um, just this past week, we'll be developing a position statement in regards to engaging with the government and the minister and the broader public. Fantastic. If anyone is interested in, yep. in following us, uh, jump on Facebook and uh, have a look at the Cuttlefish Alliance Great. We'll put and some, follow the campaign. We'll put some details to that on our Facebook page. Thank you. Our theme music's coming through. Thanks so much, Andrew. We'll catch up with you in due course. Thank you kindly. And uh, thanks so much to Andrew Hunter, to Dave Donnelly, to uh, Ben Francis Shelley. And thanks so much to you, Cade. Thank you, Brian. I'm just going to walk out the door and relax for the rest of the Excellent. day. Excellent. And uh, thanks so much to Kent. He's been um, panelling in a separate studio. To me, we've managed to get all the buttons working and everything's worked well Well, today. I think Kent's sticking around for the next hour. Yes, he is, uh, as his alter ego panel beater on next week's program. We're going to be catching up with P.T. Hirschfield. She's been scuba diving as she always does, and Jackie Younger as well, about the uh, spider crab situation here um, and their campaign, which rolls along. And Jeff Maynard will be in. Soundwave saves the world. Thank God, because somebody needs to. All right. Uh, have a wonderful Sunday. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. We'll catch you next week for more Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.